Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'm, I'm glad to get to come and uh, be with you again. Um, the last time that I was here, I was a last-minute sub for Eugene, so I had about two hours of uh, time to think about what I want to talk about. So fortunately, this time I had more time, so I came up with the subject. Um, and uh, I thought that we'd consider about food and eating and dhamma and uh, practice. And uh, one of the things I like about the sangha here is that, as I can hear from all the announcements, there are many different things that are considered part of your sangha, part of the practice. You have your singing group, and you have uh, participation in um, service activities. So everything is part of our path. Everything can be part of our spiritual path. Um, and everything can be something that we bring awareness to. So one of the areas in which we uh, engage in often is about uh, just eating, right? nourishing ourselves. Right? And I know for some people this can be, uh, maybe currently even, um, a challenging topic. So I just want to recognize that, that for some people this is an area in which maybe you've been thinking about too much, you feel like, today already or this week, or it's an area of difficulty. Um, so in that case, I would ask you to have compassion for yourself uh, both around that subject and even in being here and hearing this um, spoken about, but also maybe being open to some different um, angle that might help you to consider it in a way that uh, is easier for you. Too. So the, the reason I did the elements meditation um, in the beginning of the practice was uh, a little bit about connecting ourselves to what's around us, right? Connecting ourselves to nature, connecting ourselves to the broader world, right? So it's something that we can lose track of. I think particularly as urban animals, as uh, we are, you know, it seems sometimes like we're very separate. Like we have built this cement uh, room in which we're sitting with the wooden floor and we came here in our car, which people also made. And, you know, we came here on the Muni, also obviously human made and, you know, but actually, we're constantly in interaction with our surroundings, right? And we're a part of that. We're a part of, our, of, of nature, right? So the air that we're breathing, constantly we're breathing, right? The air is a form of nourishment for ourselves, right? If we stop breathing or if we're uh, held back from that source of nourishment very quickly, uh, our body will get very unhappy, right? We'll die. Right? So the warmth element also, right? The sun. Uh, brings warmth to the earth, brings warmth to the plants, um, warmth to us. Likewise, we need to stay a certain temperature, right, our body. Um, if it gets too cold, we don't like it so much. If it gets too hot, also, uh, it's suffering for us. I actually grew up on the East Coast, and uh, my friends on the East Coast have observed that since I've lived in San Francisco, maybe about eight years, my um, tolerance for heat and cold has like diminished. <laughs> so now, if it's uh, you know colder than like 50 degrees or warmer than you know 75 degrees, <laughs> I like, complain about it a lot more. Whereas before, you know, I had a much wider <laughs> range of tolerance. But you know, so the heat element is part of our uh, life. Right? Then the solidity. There is some solidity feeling in our uh, body, right? And there's also solidity on the earth. Uh, and it's good to remember this. This for me has been very comforting at different times in which um, I've been going through some difficulties. And just to remember that you're actually always being held by the earth in some way. Right? Uh, and if you can do it, you can actually try and um, sweep whatever, you know, let go. Let go of whatever it is that's difficult for you. Let go and let it go, you know, through you into the earth. Right? Let what's holding you up uh, hold you and hold the difficulties. And then the liquid element, so water, right? So also, this supports our life very much. Uh, I think if you go without food, uh, you can last for a couple weeks maybe, depending. But water, only a couple days can we go without water, right? Our body is like three-quarter liquid, uh, much like the same percentage as the earth, right? The earth itself. Um, And it's something we have to constantly be replenishing. So I've I've heard that uh, uh, in about a week, we basically sort of 
replenish all the water in our bodies. You know, so if you go stay somewhere for a week, then you become sort of that kind of water. Right? If, you, if you drink the water from here, then you know that becomes sort of part of you. Right? So all of us are, uh, you know, we we think of ourselves as sort of separate beings, but we're all interacting with our environment and being nourished. Right? And if this nourishment stopped, then you know that would be it for us in like fairly short order. Right, as an organism, as a physical organism. So this this element of the potential of suffering from this is um, one of the aspects of dukkha, right? Of the fact that our, our life is actually very tenuous in some ways, right? Uh, and that's difficult. There's difficulty in life. So if you have been in circumstances in which it hasn't felt like you've had to struggle for food that much, or haven't felt like you have to struggle for uh, staying warm, then uh, you can start to take that for granted. But the truth is that all of us are vulnerable. You know, all of us are vulnerable in that way as uh, human beings. And uh, actually, no matter you know how good-looking you are, or famous you are, or rich you are, you know, cut off water for several days, and that's it. Right? So this, this, the food that comes to us also that, that nourishes us, uh, you know, there's many different elements of the um, practice that we can uh, apply to this. So one is about this interconnection. So the food that comes to you, if, you, if you'd considered sort of something that you ate today, or maybe you know, your uh, whole uh, menu of things that you ate today, if you consider even just one element of that, and think about like where that came from, Right? Like how that got to you, such that you could actually eat it. Right? So it could be even something as simple as uh, an apple or a banana, piece of fruit. Right? Uh, so it had to come from the earth. Right? So a tree, something that started out very small. Right? Then from water, sunlight that grew. Uh, also, the trees are breathing. Right? The trees and plants are breathing. Fortunately, they're doing the opposite that we are, so right, uh, su- supporting each other. Then the fruit was able to grow, right, through the conditions of the rain, the sun. Maybe some of its other compatriot trees didn't quite make it, you know, because of uh, disease or uh, not enough water. Then someone had to go out. Some person probably went and picked the fruit, right. Uh, so there was labor involved in that, right often very difficult labor. Uh, and then that got to, had to be packed in something and then uh, transported right, over to the store. And there's people unloading that also, more labor involved. Right? Uh, people working in the store. Uh, then you might go there and uh, purchase that, right? take it home and eat it. So all of these things are like factors in that being able to come to you. And that's just a simple thing, right? When you get to something like pancakes, it's like 10, you know, like a lot of different elements, you know, that come together for that, right? Many things. Uh, so in some way, it's like amazing that we're all, you know, we're all part of all this, these complicated sets of interactions coming together and then becoming us, right? Um, and this is what makes us, you know, the whole you are what you eat, physical body part of us. Uh, you know, this is what keeps us alive, if you think back to yourself when you were, uh, when you were like a little kid too, when you were very small, um, so you imagine yourself as a small person, and now you're who you are now, right? Grown up. So how'd that happen? Right. So among the elements of that was that you kept eating, right? You kept getting nourished. You kept breathing. You kept eating. You kept drinking, right? Uh, and it really makes us who we are. So I've um, have been with. Uh, people who uh, work a lot in nutrition and have been in different communities in which people have not had good nutrition when they were small children. And maybe some people here also uh, had that um, circumstance in your life. And that really shapes both the physical development of people and their, uh, how much they grow and everything like that. Right? So we're like the plants and the trees too. You know, we need that kind of uh, some certain sets of circumstances to nurture us, right? to create health. So just recognizing kind of that interconnection, I think, is helpful. Um, I spent some time um, 
uh, practicing meditation in uh, Sri Lanka and some monasteries there. And in that case, as a practitioner, um, it was very obvious that the food that was being given to us was something that uh, was part of an interconnection. So lay people would come and offer food to the monks, to the nuns, and to the people who are practicing, the lay practitioners. And people would come from pretty far away, and they'd have cooked uh, food. Some of the people seemed like they were pretty poor and uh, offering really the best that they had to the monastery. So it's part of the religious tradition there of generosity, of offering food um, as a way of uh, supporting the Dhamma, supporting the monks and nuns who will then share the teachings. And actually of also broadly supporting kind of the, the teachings continuing in some way. So you'd eat uh, the meals before noon uh, when you're in a monastery uh, and all the monks and nuns don't eat food after uh, noon. So you get something maybe early morning and then there's basically one major meal going on. Uh, and it was just really clear that you know we had not been involved in that food creation and people were coming and serving us. And it's a very beautiful uh, act of generosity on their part. At the same time, also, for those of us who are taking the food, for me, it really struck me um, of what a, a sort of privilege and gift it was to get to eat. Because right? I hadn't really done anything overtly to have this food come to me. Right? So sometimes in the, in the sort of capitalist working system, you think, well, I have a job or something, and then I have money, and then I can buy food, and that's how it's supposed to be. Right? But actually, there's some way in which it all, there's all some like, grace and you know, how did you get that job, or how did you get the ability to be alive or, you know, there's something kind of um, karmic, really, about it. Right? So at the point when people, people are offering food, one of the things that would occur to me is, you know, I better deserve this food. <laughs> so, you know, I better not hack off in my meditation practice today. Uh, <laughs> I practice well because these people have come all this distance and have served this food that uh, they've taken so much trouble to prepare. Um, and it really was an incentive for me to practice uh, diligently and to be sincere about it. Uh, you know, I mean, I was as much as I could anyway, but it really was this um, incentive or a reminder about the interconnection of our lives. Right? And I think it's true uh, in general, too, you know, in circumstances in which it's not as obvious people are offering you food in that way. But um, there is a way in which we have the grace to live another day. You know, it's not really assumed, right? Uh, so what are we doing with that energy that's given to us? What are we doing with that, that day or time? Right? So food means a lot of different things. Uh, and it's sustenance. It's connected with pleasure for us. It's celebration. It can be a sense of uh, community, uh, relationship, uh, a way of expressing our identity, culture, so many different elements of that. And I think the broadest instruction about our connection with food is to bring our awareness to it. So bring our awareness and bring our um, open-heartedness to that. And then all of these different elements kind of unfold. Okay. So for, for monks and nuns, they actually are encouraged to uh, really drive all desires into one, as they say. So you know, they're focusing all of their energy into a practice, into Dhamma, into liberation, into seeing into life, into teaching this uh, insight. So they actually take a reflection before eating meals that I'll share with you, uh, not because you have to do this, but just to get a flavor of their uh, reflection. So wisely reflecting, we use this alms food not for fun, not for pleasure, not for fattening, not for beautification, but only for the maintenance and nourishment of this body, for keeping it healthy, for helping with the holy life, and thinking thus, I will allay hunger without overeating, so that I may continue to live blamelessly and at ease. So they're really focusing, you know, in all that they do, they're really focusing that this is actually this uh, medicine almost for us, right? Like this is a medicine that we take to keep ourselves alive. And why do we keep ourselves alive, you know, for this purpose? So every time they eat, they remember that, you know, and focus on that. So, you know, you don't have to have that necessarily the same phrase, but sometimes it can help you at these times of meals to sort of focus on, like, well, what's important to me in my life now? You know, what am I uh, trying to do? 
what's meaningful to me. You know, it's just kind of like a focus point for us uh, in our day, if you want to do that. So here's a, a sutta uh, that brings this even more home. And a, a, a warning, this is a, one of the more hardcore suttas that involves um, uh, extreme metaphors. Okay. So this is a, a teaching from Samyutta Nikaya. So uh, Buddha was talking to some disciples about nutriments for the maintenance of beings who have come into being or for the support of those in search of a place to be born. So what are these nutriments? Food, gross, grosser refined, uh, contact, intellectual intention, consciousness. Right? So we'll focus on the food part, nutriment. Right? So how is physical food to be regarded? Supposing a couple takes meager provisions were to travel through a desert. With them would be their only child, a baby, dear and appealing. Then the meager provisions of the couple going through the desert would be used up and depleted, but there was still a stretch of the desert yet to be crossed. The thought would occur to them, our meager provisions are used up and depleted, and there's still this stretch of desert to be crossed. We could kill our only child and basically eat them. That way, chewing on the flesh of our child, at least the two of us would make it through the desert. Otherwise, all three of us would perish. So they would kill their child, loving and endearing, and then chewing on their flesh, they would make it through the desert. So while eating this, they would beat their breasts and cry, where have you gone, our child? Where have you gone? Now, what do you think, monks? Would that couple eat that food playfully? (laughs) (laughs) Or for intoxication? Or for putting on bulk? Or for beautification? No, they answered. Uh, (laughs) Wouldn't they eat that food simply for the sake of making it through that desert? Yes, Lord. In the same way, I tell you, is the nutriment of physical food to be regarded. When physical food is comprehended, passion for the five strings of sensuality is comprehended. When passion for the five strings of sensuality is comprehended, there is no fetter bound by which a disciple of the noble ones would come back again to this world. So it's tying this also to liberation, right? So uh, having true regard and seeing into this aspect of uh, how we often go off on food, so desire or uh, illusion, different aspects, right? So this is a kind of extreme, you know, cannibalism uh, <laughs> and uh, kind of thing. But at the same time, you know, I remember that um, I had grown up going to a Catholic church and there's a very ritual piece of the mass in which there's a host held up and it's like, um, you know, this is my body, eat this in memory of me kind of thing, right? And in some way, everything that we eat is actually died for us, right? To eat. It's not us personally, like, you know, but everything has given up its life for us. So that apple had a life, right? If you eat meat, obviously those animals had lives and they've died and we're ingesting them and their life has been given up so we can live. Right? Eggs, same thing, right? And all the vegetables pulled from the ground, right? Not conscious perhaps in the same way, but uh, the life of that entity has ended, become part of us so we can continue, right? So there's this very profound way in which, you know, everything in this interconnection, uh, you know, there's sacrifices going on. So uh, even if it's not cannibalism, you know, there's some way in which things are dying for us, right? So that we can live. So food also means other things to us. So food means um, pleasure and uh, community. So this week there was a a great um, celebration uh, about in at least the LGBT community, I think in general in San Francisco for the uh, California Supreme Court decision that came down, right? Allowing uh, or not stopping same-sex marriage. Uh, So in uh, conjunction with that, I went to the LGBT center on the day that that was announced and there was a big party there. So what you do at a party is people offer food and drink, right? So eat and drink, celebration. And then uh, at my workplace also actually decided to have a celebration. So someone went out and bought some sort of a cupcake-like wedding cake, you know, uh, for the celebration. so, you know, that wasn't, that, you know, you need things like cupcakes. It's not necessarily like purely for sustenance of uh, <laughs> body. There's, you know, some <laughs> enjoyment and uh, celebration element there too. Um, 
And you know, it, there's actually nothing wrong with enjoying food. There's actually nothing wrong with pleasure. So sometimes you get the more hardcore version of the Buddhist path, and it sounds like, oh, I have to, uh, you know, uh, give up all pleasure. Or it's bad to have pleasure, but actually, it's totally not. Like pleasant is one aspect of our existence, uh, and the way to work with that is just to be aware of it, actually, to enjoy it, right? And to try to be able to enjoy the pleasant for what it is, uh, without being pulled off, leading into craving, sort of more desire, grasping. Right? So there's a way that you can experience extremely pleasant sensations, food, sex, warmth, anything, and just be there with that pleasantness. Right? So and actually being able to be there with that experience completely, able to be there completely with cupcake as cupcake is being eaten. <laughs> you know, without, uh, without, while you're eating that cupcake, leaning for, you know, can I have a second cupcake? You know? <laughs> like actually being able to experience that um, is practice. And if you have that leaning, then being aware of that is also practice, right? The leaning for the second cupcake also. So in, uh, in practice of um, eating is also uh, helpful to bring mindfulness just to that food itself. So some of you here have been in the beginning classes here where we have like the raisin meditation, right? We give out the raisins and then uh, you hold them for a while and look at them, then you smell them, then you put it in your mouth, but you don't actually eat them yet and feel the texture, right? Then finally, you're allowed to take like one chew of it and feel that taste sensation. Uh, and you know, going through that um, experience of just mindfully eating something very simple, uh, very slowly. Right? So we can bring this awareness to our uh, meals too, whatever it is that we're eating. Right? Um, and this is helpful in uh, feeling that connection uh, to the experience and feeling the nourishment of the body. Right? It helps us also to know what to eat that's good for us and how much to eat, things like that. Right? So one of the tips that I was given about you know, mindful eating is uh, to actually put the fork or spoon down in between bites can help you. Right? So eat something, put it down, and then you can actually experience the food that you're eating before you go for the second uh, or third forkful. Right? One of my teachers also was a practitioner of um, this uh, anapanasati is um, awareness of breathing. So his practice, which is one of the angles of the mindfulness practice, is to be in connection with breathing, the experience of breathing, so all the time to some extent in the background or foreground. And he said that through being aware of the breathing, uh, particularly in eating, he would be able to tell if there was something sort of that he was slightly allergic to in the food or uh, you know, slightly off, or it helped him to see when the breathing became shorter, there was anxiety, you know, what's going on in this. Um, so in being connection with our body and with the sensations that happen uh, from eating is a good uh, portion of our practice too. So we can also take the uh, practice of nutrition, what we take in um, more broadly, right? To general, what we take in. So we also take things into our mind. So we take things in via uh, reading things, uh, watching films, right? watching TV, uh, listening to music, right? And just as whatever food that we eat becomes us, becomes who we are, right? Affects our body and uh, all these other things that we take in affect our mind, right? So thoughts, dreams, uh, the words that come to us, right? All this is very influenced by all of this that we take in, you know, what we ingest from around us, right? Uh, even you can see it filtering into your dreams, right? So this is also further evidence that we are not one sort of solid, separate self moving around. You know, what we eat, ingest, affects our body uh, and also our thoughts sometimes. What we ingest through films, through reading, through conversations also affects our mind, right? It's all very porous, right? Also, food is very connected with community. Right? Community is an important aspect of uh, our practice in some way also. Right? So interconnection with other people. So my family is uh, Sri Lankan and uh, one of the big elements of coming together is eating together and eating Sri Lankan food, uh, which is also hard food to find in restaurants around the US. There's not that many places you can eat it. So it's an important part of our celebration coming together or being with a family, right? Or being with friends, 
um, when you meet people, right, to connect over food, there's something that's sort of like sharing that element of sustenance that uh, I think both highlights and enhances your sense of community and connection. Um, Offering food to someone, feeding someone. I spent some time in um, Indonesia also. I might have mentioned the last time I was here. And uh, one of the common ways people would greet each other is by saying, oh, have you eaten already? Have you eaten yet? Usually they say, have you eaten yet? Have you bathed already? Right. So uh, it's because it's very hot, so you do, you know, bathe many times a day. So, um, so have you eaten already? And then, you know, if not, maybe you'll offer some food to someone. So that kind of hospitality and, and welcoming uh, and also some recognition of our sort of common uh, human needs in this way. So maybe I'll stop with my uh, thoughts there at the moment and allow for people to make comments or uh, suggestions or questions. So generally the, the uh, encouragement is just to bring mindfulness to our uh, all aspects of our life and then this one that we do often, right? So both the interconnection aspect of it, um, you can actually reflect on that if you want to before meals also. Uh, in the Zen practice, they sometimes have a prayer that says, you know, innumerable efforts have gone into providing this meal. And they sort of reflect on that chain of causality, right? And then also a point of reflecting on, you know, I'm taking this in to continue my life and uh, what is important to me right now? You know, what's that about? And then trying to be present actually with the um, experience of eating the food too. Right. So after this for your reflection, thank you. I'm open to any comments or questions or complaints also. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I just had a question whether there was like a two tier system for the people that were going to do follow that sutta where you get no pleasure. Mm. Uh, that you're just eating to sustain yourself. Uh huh. You know, in Buddh- I'm just wondering in traditional Buddhism if there's like a two tier system. like. If you want to get to enlightenment, you can just eat like that. And if you just want to be a little more peaceful uh-huh. and be more, you know, social, <laughs> you, yeah. you have hospitality and you have pleasure and you live in Italy, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think it's it's the same actually. So the encouragement for you know the in the even in the monks and nuns' prayers about. Um, like we use this not for pleasure, so meaning that the intention of taking it is not pleasure, but then if it's pleasant in eating it, it's good, mm-hmm. right? So if it's pleasant during the experience of eating it, then you can be aware of that pleasure and actually enjoy that, right? Um, but that one doesn't seek out things to eat. So theoretically, one doesn't see in, in the, the very hardline version that one is actually be, being offered this food uh, and the other part of it too, I guess, for the monks and the nuns is that they don't have choice about what they eat, right? So basically you put your bowl out there and then people put stuff in it and then you eat that, <laughs> you know? Uh, so it's not like, oh, should I have chocolate or strawberry today? No, it's like, you know, that's what it is. So then in that case also, that's sort of part of that practice, um, which is different than what most of us as lay people have as practice where we actually do have choice and actually can um, move towards things that are more pleasant or you know, less pleasant. I think also though it's important like just to note that that food element is actually very connecting. So that community all eats together of the monks and nuns. So that's something that's very connecting. And then uh, actually usually the food that's left over, they aren't allowed to store food. So then that's given to either other people or to other animals around. So there's connection that way too. And then even I think the act of the family is coming and bringing food is also this connection between the sangha and the community, you know. So it's not there in the regular way that we think of connection of like going out with people or, you know, celebratory kind of thing, but um, it's definitely there too. So I think, you know, it's it's impossible to take that out. And he doesn't really talk about it so much also, but um, I think it's it's kind of built into the system. Right. So, yeah. How true is this saying that if somebody cooks food with anger, you eat that? If somebody cooks food with anger, that you eat that? I don't know. Uh, do you mean that then you, if the you eat the anger, like you actually feel anger from that? Hmm. I haven't heard that one uh, so much. That's a good one to observe for yourself, if that's true. 
Uh, and even if you cook things for yourself, is it different if uh, you know, uh, it's cooked with loving kindness and awareness or if it's cooked with uh, you know, anger? I don't know. What do people think? What's your experience of that? I think that might depend on how you react to anger. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, if people cook with more care, you notice that, right? Both in the cooking and then also even in the serving of it. Like something very simple can be served with a lot of care and then you can feel that. Like a lot of the nourishment aspect can be, uh, can convey love, I think, you know as opposed to if someone like chucks a plate of stuff at you, right? Um, so in that way, like maybe we feel that through the food, but you know, I don't know about the actual substance itself, what that happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was just at Spirit Rock for a week, and of course it was great vegetarian food, and here we have a potluck and it's vegetarian. Um, but in my personal life, I do eat meat, and I've tried vegetarianism, Yeah, so the question is about um, Buddhism and vegetarianism. And uh, he just came from Spirit Rock and was just all vegetarian there. And then, uh, likewise, here when you have potlucks, it's vegetarian. But then, um, eating meat otherwise and sort of relationship. Yeah, this is um, a question that many people have um, written about, talked about, and so on. So there's an encouragement not to kill living beings. That one's pretty clear, right? So for us not to kill uh, animals, humans, um, so obviously for the, the meat to be eaten uh, you know either the animal died naturally in which case nobody killed it or else somebody actually had to kill it but most of the meat you buy right, probably someone killed right? um, so the, the, there's not an, a, a um, it's actually interesting that there's not a precept that you can't eat uh, animals in Buddhism as in some religions like Jainism uh, is clearly like uh, very vegetarian, other some other practices. For the monks and the nuns, the encouragement was to take what's offered. So it actually, uh, they were not supposed to be, to say they were vegetarian. Um, and I think that was partly a, you know, don't be picky kind of thing. So if that particular community actually, that's what they had, then that's what you ate. At the same time, they were not supposed to eat animals that they thought were killed expressly for them, right? So, you know, I guess you don't always know how that works, but I guess if they show up and then they hear sounds that sound like something's being killed and then cooked, or, you know, <laughs> then not to eat that. But um, you know, so there definitely is some awareness that you don't want to have animals suffer for your life if you can not. Right? And actually, it was also even an encouragement not to, um, or a precept not to uh, go in ox carts and horse carts and things for the monks and nuns. So not to cause suffering for animals by riding them. Right? So also this wasn't for lay people, but for the monks and nuns, they were like, you know, driving it all into one, you know, trying to be as pure as possible in some way, right? Um, so, you know, it's a question. In, in many Buddhist countries, they eat meat. In Sri Lanka, they eat meat, right? Uh, the monks and the nuns eat what's offered, and uh, I think there's a, in some places, sort of an understanding it's better to serve them, to not serve them meat. In the monastery I was at, they didn't offer meat. So even if lay people ate meat in their life. They didn't offer meat to the practitioners. Um, it seems like another area also to bring the awareness practice to, because like I was saying, there's also a, a way in which uh, our life involves others' death anyway, right? To some extent or another, right? So even when you're, um, uh, as talking the last um, sitting group, if you're brushing your teeth, we're actually killing bacteria in our mouth, right? Or, uh, you know, from driving on the road, you know, the fact that the road is paved, like things are dying, right? So there's a way in which we're a part of this whole cycle of life and death already, right? But then it's like, where, uh, where can you situate yourself, uh, I think, with purity of intention and taking what you need, right? So then it also connects, I think, with the um, second precept of, you know, not taking what's not offered, but the broader uh, sense of that is like taking what you need but not taking more than that, right? So how much do we need of that? Right? So I think in you know, American, uh, general American dietary culture, there's been this sense of needing like a lot of meat to be eaten, right, for health. And 
remember hearing that the food pyramid that I remember learning when I was a kid that was like, you know, dairy and then grains and then fruits and vegetables and then meat or something like that, right? was actually uh, a product from the, um, you know, Dairy Association and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Cattle Grower Association. There's some political uh, influence in that uh, uh, idea about nutrition. And you know, the ideas of nutrition, like, keep changing. So some of it is, like, we have to be aware ourselves. Like, what do we actually need to stay alive? Um, and... And the Dalai Lama apparently eats meat. Apparently he was told by his doctor that he needed to eat some protein, right? So then it's like, how much of that do we need also? Um, also in being aware of the interconnection kind of thing and what circumstances, from which circumstances would we have the meat come, right? So factory farming, something that causes a lot of suffering to animals, right? Is there a way to get uh, uh, meat from sources that have caused less suffering or not supporting industries that cause a lot of suffering, right? is one way. Um, and also just considering from oneself, like, how much do I need, you know, which I think is a good broader question for us. So there's not one clear answer, like this is the thing with the Dharma and precepts, is a lot of it is like becoming aware and then through our sense of our interconnection that uh, hopefully a wise answer will come and that also it changes, it can change sometimes, right? So the clear one is like not to kill, right? Um, but beyond that then there's some room for exploration, I think. Yeah, thank you. I actually had meant to say something um, regarding that because I think that's a very important topic. And it also is part of how we can see our conditioning played out because uh, it really is this conditioning of... Uh, I, I actually had an eating disorder myself in my teens and actually practice helped me with that. Um, and it was so much conditioning. It was conditioning about this idea of what I should look like for me, right? And this conditioning is from that diet of, uh, you know, newspaper and magazines and movies and, you know, all this stuff, like, relentlessly, uh, you know, uh, impacting us from the time you're, like, two or three, right? Uh, from the time you can open your eyes. And uh, there was a lot of suffering with that. The, the Anglon practice that helped me a lot was uh, becoming aware of thoughts as patterns, really. So that a lot of these thoughts that came up that were um, around uh, bad self-image, body image, and so on. I mean, they're practically like recorded ones that we've been, have been inserted in a module, you know, particularly for young women. It's like, oh, insert this module, you know? Uh, and, and I mean, really for many, many people, I think, um, have that, but for young women in particular, it's like, they sort of, you know, it's like a little USB key that you get stuck in there, right? <laughs> so it's like just being, becoming aware, this is the USB key. And that's the modern one. At the time that I had it, it was like a tape, right? So it was cassette tape. Yeah, right. So it's like, you know, being aware, this is a cassette tape, and when it hits play, this is this um, repeated loop of something that comes on, and this is not me, you know? I'm taking this to be me, and I'm taking this to be uh, who I am and beliefs about myself. So I think having, um, practicing and learning more distance from thought uh, and seeing through that as self was one aspect that really helped me. Yeah. That was um, the 
issue that I was dealing with with each step of the way. I'm, my instruction from my teacher was be mindful of, even if you're overeating, even if you're starving yourself, you might be drunk or whatever, be as mindful as you can with that yeah. and see what happens. It's a slower, it's a slower process to the 12 steps, but it's actually, it, it does, I have found it. Yeah. And I think it's possible also that if one's relationship to whatever it is has become so difficult, like food or even addictive substance, then it is hard to just be given the broad instruction like be mindful because uh, like one's relationship to that has gotten so uh, like, you know, uh, it's hard to just do that in an in a open, relaxed way. So um, then there's various like, um, I think there's various other things to do to support oneself in that. Um, but thank you for bringing that up. I think it's an important um, topic. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned the elements of earth and uh, air and water. I was thinking maybe if the Yeah, yeah, yeah. So fire is one of them, actually. So it's earth, air, water, fire. So that's the fourth uh, element. And fire is sometimes seen as the heat and so on. But I, I like that image of the grass fire, yeah, like zipping across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very much um, there. And I mean, that was kind of their uh, scientific uh, sort of system at that time. But sometimes people think of it also as the energy, solid, liquid, gas, you know, sort of more modern scientific breakdown of things. But uh, yeah, whichever way, I think it helps us to come into contact with that direct experience of uh, our body, our mind, as well as some um, distance from it as like ourselves completely. Yeah. 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 My question is, you know, when I was a kid, I was was told, I don't know if this is true, but I was told that the Bodhisattva died because he was offered some meat that was bad. Mm. That, it may be just an urban legend. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the question was that uh, he had heard that the Bodhisattva um, died because he'd offered some meat that was bad. And is that just urban legend? Or maybe it is. Um, so yeah, the, the, according to the, to the stories of Buddha's death, he did die from eating uh, bad pork that was offered to him. So he also ate the meat that was offered to him. And in fact, he knew that it was going to be, uh, he knew that it was bad and he said, no one else should eat this besides me and actually bury the rest of this yeah. stuff, um, according to the suttas. And then um, somebody who was a doctor who read this, had, had speculated, it was like, I can't remember the term, but it was like some stomach thing that then ensued, which led to his uh, death. But so yes, the, the answer is yes. Uh, and I'm happy if, Stories from the Sutta are like coming into urban legend now. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, in fact, he did. That is how he, he died, basically, um, from uh, bad meat. So, uh, yeah. Oh, just a little thing to add to that. I, I had heard that, that there's even controversy over that because the word for um, was something relating to pork. And some people say it was like a pig's ear mushroom. Oh, so okay. It might have been a bad mushroom. Okay. <laughs> so, it's so, <laughs> so the point about the possible translation of the word uh, that maybe it was a pig's ear mushroom and not pork itself. So my Polly is not good enough to have any contribution on that subject, but it's possible. So, yeah. It was food. Yeah, it was definitely food. It was food. <coughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Loki. I'm just curious if there, I have, I've never heard this, if there's any understanding as to why then if he knew Right. Yeah. No, that's a, a good question, and that will be perhaps a uh, subject for another. The, so the question was, if if he knew it was poisonous, why do you eat it? <laughs> right. A fine question. Um, so uh, yeah, that might be. Uh, fodder for a longer Dharma talk. So apparently in this last period of his life also, there was different times in which he had some sort of choice points about whether, how long he would continue to teach. Um, So it sounded like from some of the the suttas that he actually had 
sort of decided at a certain point that it's enough, right? Um, and that he wanted the, the Dhamma to be sort of um, fully uh, flourishing before he passed. And uh, also actually towards the end of his life, he had a lot of pain. He had actually had a lot of physical pain. So Buddha spent a lot of time doing austerity practices for five or six years before uh, becoming enlightened. And he had back pain. And uh, there's some suttas in which he says things like, um, you know, my, my body is like an old cart being held together by straps. And uh, basically only by going into jhanic practice do I have relief from this constant pain. Yeah. Or a few times when he was in a lot of pain and he actually asked uh, Ananda to sub for him or someone else to start put that to sub for him in Dhamma talk. Uh, so uh, we could talk a lot about the end of his life. It's actually pretty interesting. But uh, uh, I don't totally know why he, he did that. Someone in the back, I don't know. So like according to Buddhist teachings, like, yeah, so the question is about eating dairy products and related to eating meat. Uh, so what's the teachings on that? Um, there aren't as much uh, clear teachings on um, that one. Although like at that time of the Buddha, they didn't have stuff like factory farming, you know, so they would like, people would drink milk, but the cows weren't kept in some, you know, or I'd actually, I don't even know if they, they drank milk. They definitely had ghee, this butter type product, right, which came from um, dairy. Uh, which is still part of the diet in uh, India, right? clarified butter kind of product. Um, so I think it still is the same kind of general um, uh, encouragement to try to alleviate suffering, right? And to be aware of taking what you need kind of thing. But there's nothing about um, specifically about dairy, about not taking that or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, I was just thinking of something that brings together a couple of the questions, sort of, um, in reading Tekhanpan's book on anger, mm. he, he really encourages in eating dairy uh, to eat dairy that's organic or that's not not uh, you know the animals weren't treated with harm, with the idea that if you do, you will be angry more often. Uh, so he says that if you eat uh, if you eat dairy products from animals that have mistreated, that it will actually cause greater. Uh, so that's actually regarding your question that you had. Yeah, yeah. I haven't. I have. I have to explore that myself. I have not noticed that, but that's possible. So. Yeah. 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 Um, I feel like I have to add something else. Um, if the concern is to reduce suffering, um, millions of acres of land that could be used for agriculture uh, are taken over by uh, livestock. Mm-hmm. And we have a problem of world hunger, so it's not just the suffering of animals; mm-hmm. it's the suffering of our, our fellow human beings that <coughs> excuse me that uh, uh, is happening because of our desire to eat meat. Right, right. Thank you. And that's a that's a big part of it. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, in the back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I come from a background about food and food and
So you actually have a greater uh, some things that cause greater awareness for you then. Although, you know, I think there's a sense in our culture that you should have pleasure in food. And as you can tell from the hardline Buddhist teachings, doesn't, he didn't think that you should necessarily. Like, you don't have to. So, actually, food as medicine, it sounds like you've become very aware of this and have to be very aware for your health. And so that's, right? Yeah. Right. And what you've highlighted also in what you're saying is sort of how your relationship to food has changed in this time, which is also true for all of us too. And that's both what's difficult about life, but also uh, the truth of it is everything's always changing. And so it could be that you feel like, oh, okay, I'll figure out the perfect diet for me and the perfect like, proportion of things, and then I can like, hang on to that. But then as we grow and get older and different things happen, it's like we actually have to be in constant connection to that and check in with that, right? So that brings us back to uh, awareness, right? to mindfulness. So what is our refuge, right? Actually, what is our refuge? So can we take refuge in concocting a certain set of circumstances that if we are able to fulfill them will keep us safe and happy? It doesn't work, right? So mindfulness is our refuge, right? Bringing awareness. And maybe on that note, we'll close our evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.